Welcome to the Bar Hacks Podcast. Engaging interviews, plus tips and strategies to navigate your bar or restaurant business towards sustainable success. Now, here's your host, hospitality industry veteran, journalist, and editor, David Klempt. Hey, welcome back to the Bar Hacks Podcast. I hope you're well. Thank you for listening. We have an awesome guest. We have a distillery that I have not gotten to explore yet, but I definitely plan on when I can. We are speaking with Richard Patrick, the co-founder of Cathead Distillery in Mississippi. How's it going? Great. How are you doing? Doing well. Staying out of the uh, gusty winds I was just telling you about (laughs) here in Vegas. Not getting blown over. How is Mississippi? I was great down here. 70 degrees and sunny. Perfect. (laughs) Pretty hard to beat. I think you have better weather than Vegas right now, so I'm envious. So before we start, and so I don't forget to ask at the end, because as the the regular audience knows, I do that sometimes. How can people connect with Cathead? Uh, easiest way is uh, catheaddistillery.com or our uh, Instagram handle at drinkcathead. Perfect. So I learned something that I did not know, so I'm guessing a lot of our audience doesn't know this. But prohibition was not repealed in Mississippi until 1966. It's very interesting to learn that they didn't have a legal distillery in your state until 2010, and it's your legal distillery, Cadhead. That's correct. <laughs> so, what inspired you to enter this industry and open the first legal distillery in Mississippi? A lot of things kind of led to the inspiration of uh, starting Mississippi's first oldest distillery, legal distillery, that is. Uh, and I think a lot of that led to uh, my friendship uh, with my business partner. We uh, we met at Alabama in the business school and uh, just had a lot of uh, kind of like-minded conversations about who we wanted to be when we grew up and what we didn't want to do. We both came from families and small business uh, businesses. And uh, so I feel like uh, there was kind of already some kind of appetite for, for that, but uh, both of our families, uh, they didn't have uh, respective business partners in their businesses. And that was one thing neither of us wanted to go at, uh, any kind of business alone. So um, it, it's just way more fun working with a, a good friend of mine day in and day out. And uh, shoot, we're, we're both in, involved in uh, the wine and spirits industry and, and different kind of uh, job roles. And one of our biggest things was blues music, uh, kind of in our more single uh, years when we were able to get away and travel a good bit and uh there was kind of that lightning in a bottle moment that happened one late night in the uh mississippi delta uh we were at a uh like a juke joint style festival and we were sitting out on the back of a tailgate in the middle of uh like a a farm and uh i don't know how the conversation got started but we were both involved in the business um in in different aspects at that time we were like how you know, how cool would it be to start Mississippi's first uh, distillery? And, uh, you know, that three in the morning, uh, maybe <laughs> overserved idea uh, was very sober the next day. And we were like, this is really cool. 
we should uh should try to figure out how to do this so that kind of started started the ball going and uh, a few years later we were we were up and going yeah, I was curious how long did it take from let's say the sober decision to opening the doors the first time it's, it's hard it's hard to say like a timeline necessarily but I, I want to say a couple of years and a lot of that just had to do with uh, with Mississippi laws and regulations and it wasn't necessarily red tape it's just there was never a a, a distillery in, in the state before so um, had to ask a lot of questions and uh, and then we just kind of jumped in and then over over the last uh 12 years we've we've worked legislatively to have a little bit more uh leniency on uh operating a distillery i mean when we started we weren't even allowed to advertise our location uh, we weren't allowed <laughs> to offer tours obviously and tastings uh so there we've come a long way <laughs> and you had to pave the way which i mean alicia like you said you had a, a friend to kind of work with every day on that I'm sure it was a lot of stress but having the right partner makes yeah. a huge difference and then obviously you sharing very persistent means a lot yeah, exactly <laughs> and then I have to ask because I'm not from Mississippi what is the significance of the name cathead so a lot of people think it's uh named after a biscuit uh like a homemade biscuit that's kind of in the shape of a cat head it's just kind of like a uh, unstructured biscuit, but that's that's not where the name Cathead came from. It was kind of uh, right where where the story started with us and the idea of starting the distillery up in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and kind of that's where the the crossroads of uh, uh, blues music and uh, a, a lot of rich uh, culture comes from, and uh, in terms of uh, the, the music industry and. Cathead is uh, been like a term of endearment, uh, a sign of respect for uh, blues artists, uh, kind of referring to one another as cats, like that cat can play, and uh, and we we wanted something that um, kind of was our our beacon, our namesake, uh, that paid respect to the the state and the uh, heritage of blues music. Blues music started in Mississippi. Uh, so uh, that's that's where the idea came from. That's awesome. And being from Chicago originally, I, yeah, blues music, you know, huge influence there as well. So can definitely respect that. What was the first uh, spirit that Cat had produced? Uh, so the first spirit we produced uh, is our namesake, which is Cathead Vodka. And uh, that's still our number one item by volume. Um, we, uh, we offer a, a few... Uh, uh, flavored line extensions of Cathead 2. We make a honeysuckle, which happens to be our number two. We actually approach that more like a liqueur, but being kind of geographically where we were and uh, a decade ago of uh, releasing our second item in, in our portfolio, we didn't think people would understand a liqueur as much as they would a flavored vodka. Uh, so naturally that uh, that was our our entry into uh, building more of a, a portfolio of brands. And then you've also got a bourbon, a gin, you've got a, a chicory liqueur, which I think the first time I tasted chicory was in New Orleans. I think at a Tales of the Cocktail event. And yeah. then you also have uh, sparkling RTDs, 
And so I'm just curious how you how you choose what you want to produce in your portfolio. Uh, good question. I think a lot of that just has arrived organically over the years. Um, a, a big thing Austin and I, my business partner and I wanted to do from day one was make bourbon. Uh, but uh, we lacked the uh, capital when we started and, and, and really just didn't want to go down like a kind of a uncertain path in terms of buying a bunch of equipment um, initially and we didn't come in with sophisticated capital so uh, we we actually outsourced our production on our cat head originally our cat head vodka and used a co-packer and uh, we just literally got in the driver's seat and started selling product I think Mississippi at the time had like 300 retail locations and uh, maybe 400 on-premise permits. And uh, we, we literally, uh, or by rank that we wanted to see, and uh, we literally got in the car and just tried to meet everyone we possibly could, uh, kind of learn what the consumer wanted more. And and really uh, how we ar arrived at, at vodka originally was it, it is still the largest category in, in the state. And, uh, and, you know, we, we had a little bit of bandwidth already in our past careers to uh, know how to kind of uh, formulate that and, and build that into more of a, a business model and also for uh, a distribution model to grow our, our business while we, you know, kind of figured out on the back end of how to you know, build or add new brands into our, into our book. So as you started, you know, getting cat head on shelves and on back bars, we're Mississippians shocked where's the a lot of pride like what was the the response uh, it's pretty funny uh so I mean obviously you you have different stages of kind of like uh, consumer product right you have your early adopters who are awesome you need you need those folks but uh, a good chef buddy of ours he kind of put it best early on he was like I think he had been a restaurant operator at the time for at least like 15 years. And he was like, guys, you know, it, it's going to take some time for Mississippians to earn your trust. So just be patient with it and, and kind of one foot in front of the other. What we didn't realize at the time when he was saying that was he was talking about himself included. Uh, but now, I mean, like he's a huge supporter of us. And it's fantastic. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of what helps kind of like the second stage of adoption to our uh, our cathead brand was was mainly uh, growth outside of Mississippi. So New Orleans is only a few hours south of us. Birmingham four hours east. Memphis a couple hours north. So so a lot of Jacksonians in our home market kind of travel frequently, and a lot of a lot of people go down to New Orleans to to eat and party. And I think that was like the second phase of brand adoption was people locally realizing that we were more than just a, a local brand. We were more of a regional brand and, you know, seeing their heroes of restaurateurs uh, being fully supportive behind us, probably I, I would, I would say with pretty certain confidence was really the catalyst for further brand adoption with, with us in our home market. So I'm going to stir a little controversy up here, possibly. But how would you say Mississippi bourbon 
stacks up to Kentucky bourbon and Tennessee whiskey, which I'm going to go ahead and say it. Tennessee whiskey is bourbon. I know people want to, are going to argue, but that's not what you said. That's what I'm saying. So if anybody doesn't like that, they can write it at me. But would you say, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people are finally starting to realize that you don't have to make bourbon in Kentucky and that maybe there are some new markets emerging where the product is just as good, if not better than some of what's coming out of Kentucky. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think that, uh, I mean, I'm sure a Kentuckian might uh, <laughs> throw it back in your face and and rightfully so to some respect. But I mean, if, if, uh, if we're saying that making bourbon outside of Kentucky or whiskey outside of Tennessee is uh, controversial. I mean, what, let's, let's start with, uh, Scotland and, uh, single malt whiskeys there. And, uh, and then kind of the, um, evolution of time of North America starting to make whiskeys and single malts and Asia, India, and, and then you kind of have to realize that it's more of a global thing. Uh, bourbon obviously has more cachet and protection as a, a, as a U.S. category. So I think when you look at bourbon, you have to look at, uh, at, at the United States. And I think one thing that really separates uh, American whiskeys and American bourbons is the vast terroir difference that we have all over the country. And I'm not saying just terroir from being able to source local ingredients, but you have such extremes in weather. Uh, and what that does to maturation in barrels is throw crazy data points into a producer like me's psyche of how how to uh, position barrels and and rick houses down here as opposed to like a Kentucky. I mean, you're in Las Vegas. One of the wildest whiskeys I've ever had was a, a Las Vegas distilling company. I, I don't know if they still exist, but just seeing what what it does, what maturation does in a barrel of desert heat, you know, same thing in Texas. They're like, look at Balcones. They're doing neat things and, and flavor, which I think is unique to their terroir where they're able to mature barrels. And same thing in the Pacific Northwest. So I think you got to kind of cast a wider net. And I think the consumer, and, and this, this kind of comes, I won't mention this person's name, but is a predominant buyer in Kentucky for uh, uh, retail. And they're like, I can sell Kentucky bourbon all day long. I can sell your uh, Mississippi bourbon all day long up here, but I'm, I'm able to sell a lot more of your bourbon outside of Kentucky uh, because there's more perception to, uh, or, or, or less stigma of it not being a Kentucky bourbon uh, in like a California or, uh, you know, another market. So I don't know. It's pretty interesting. I, I feel like, uh, I feel like brand adoption in the U S bourbon segment is, is cycling into something that is, it is a larger net than just Kentucky and Tennessee, but, you know, you got to also respect the, the terroir, uh, of uh, of Tennessee and Kentucky, they're pretty fantastic, and you know, the, I feel like you know we have our hot 
hot summers down here and uh, Kentucky has their cold winters and knowing how to be a good steward of, of barrel management uh, in those particular climates, uh, I, I think is what is going to separate your, your uh, end, end product. All excellent points. And we'll stay on bourbon because you now have a 2022 single barrel expression of Cathead Old Soul Bourbon. So what can you tell our audience about this release? So the single barrel expression uh, came as a, uh, originally as a store pick offering that we were doing last year in market. And uh, what I mean by that to listeners that aren't familiar with that, I'm assuming most everybody understands what store picks are, uh, but uh, we, we sell a single barrel to, or we offer a, a variety of different uh, barrel picks to uh, select retail accounts, and and from there they they kind of pick the nuances that they like, differentiating between uh, no barrel is created equal. Uh, there might be some uh, you know consistent similarities, but uh, I feel like in the store pick land, a lot of people are going for more esoteric, or maybe one that's esoteric and one for like maybe their bourbon club or their core buyers. Uh, so. Uh, what what we noticed with that was, uh, I mean, we could sell more store picks than uh, we could offer, uh, but we were kind of missing a lot of uh, our our good customers that maybe couldn't buy a whole barrel. And where we wanted to kind of go with our bourbon portfolio is we still wanted to maintain a store pick, but that 109 proof uh, really seemed to get good brand adoption. Uh, by our customers and uh, we just love the flavor profile of a, of a 109 proof single barrel pick uh, so you know we, we decided um, jointly and, and talking with our customers as well like hey this is what we're thinking about doing and, uh, and we, we got nothing but you know thumbs up on it so we're, we're trying to make that more of an everyday item in our portfolio. So our, our small batch bourbon is 90 proof. And, uh, and then our, uh, our single barrel is 109. And uh, so we still want to offer store picks. So we offer those at CAS. So, and then this is just because you mentioned the, the store picks, but is there a restaurant in Mississippi that you have also like purchased a specific single barrels so people can check that out or is that maybe in the, the works? So that that's in the works. We're uh we're just releasing uh store picks this year in Mississippi. So uh that's that's kind of a, a, a new thing. Yeah restaurants uh I would say probably one of the wildest whiskey selections in, in on-premise to check out if you're ever passing through Jackson as a restaurant called the Manship. I, I would I would probably put that up against most any city's uh, back bar. Wow. All right. Yeah. I'll have to check that out then. One of the best ways, obviously, is neat to enjoy the old soul single barrel, but do you have any other suggestions? I mean, is there a cocktail that you tried it in that you thought it really stood out? Yeah, so um, I mean, there's there's a lot of cocktails that I like to drink uh, <laughs> regularly, but uh, I am a creature of habit in my own home. So uh, my wife and I usually have a, a nightcap after we get the kids to bed, and that's uh, typically an old fashioned. 
I, I seem to run out of the small batch in my house uh, pretty fast. Uh, so I, I tend to start pulling uh, the 109 in, into my uh, into my old fashions. And I, I would say I kind of like those better. That that extra proof is, is a nice little punch for a, a, a one drink nightcap. And uh, it also just like, you know, shows a lot stronger and uh in a old-fashioned that's kind of what i'm what i'm always looking for in a, in a drink is really tasting the uh the base spirit hi there just a quick message before we get you back to this episode if you're looking to take your bar restaurant or hospitality business to the next level i mean to profits of 12 to 15 percent or more it's time to take action Let's start creating your roadmap to success with our proprietary strategies, tools, resources that will inspire your team, activate your potential, and lead your hospitality brand to margins you never thought possible. Visit krghospitality.com right after this episode for more information. Now, back to the Bar Hacks podcast. So I was going to ask you how you would suggest a bartender you are speaking with introduce a guest to a Mississippi bourbon, but I think you already answered that brilliantly and I loved your answer. So if you were to, you know, roll into a bar, bartender asks what you do, you mentioned that you're the co-founder of Cathead. How would you suggest a bartender introduce a guest to the Cathead brand? Ooh, uh, you know, that that's a, a Cathead brand and, in old soul or just our entire business uh, i mean either one i mean i know it's kind of a, a big question but you know if yeah. if they didn't have old soul we'll, we'll go with that they didn't have old soul bourbon yet and you know they were open to the idea you know how would you suggest you know there are people you know their their go-to might be you know woodford or it might be jim beam or it could be evan williams like how would you say that old old soul like slots in and how they should introduce a guest to it yeah so i mean i'll i might not be answering your question directly here but i'll start how like we as a company and our our small sales team uh focuses on uh on on building kind of uh brand adoption in the on-premise uh i mean we first you know, maybe our sales team might tell you otherwise, but uh, I, I feel like the thing we first try to do is identify what accounts fit for our brand, because obviously we're not going to, I mean, we, we could potentially sell everywhere, but uh, we're, we're going to look for people and operators that are more dialed in, uh, have, you know, more, more of a storytelling capability um you know it has to fit the back bar and you know maybe us being in our home market here we can we can be more places than uh you know back bar and in your home market but i I think that's kind of where we start is uh you know we're not going in for an elevator pitch we're going in to build relationships long term and uh and that's really how we want to earn people's business and and uh, so it, it's not just a kind of a one-liner type of thing. We we want <laughs> we want to get to know know the business, and I know that's probably a harder hook for just like how a bartender is going to sell this to you know somebody sitting across the bar. Uh, so you know, equally, I think that you know our hook is probably you know this is Mississippi's oldest distillery. 
they are making bourbon and uh you know i don't want to fully rely on like the terroir of our barrels because i think we make a, a fantastic distillate before it gets in the barrels but i do think that is a uniquely uh point of unique point of differentiation is like you know try this mash bill from this part of the country versus this mash bill in another part of the country and you know that i think to me is uh is pretty important uh, because every, every barrel isn't created equal and and where it, where it's aged isn't created equal either so you know i, I think we kind of the consistent the consistency in our barrels I mean, we are getting really deep, rich, like vanillas, caramels, and kind of like cherry flavor profiles. And these are from like five to six, seven year range, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of amazed uh, that, you know, how young these barrels are for us and, uh, and how well they show. So you know, age statement has kind of always been a thing to me in single malts, but uh, what I'm learning more specifically in the space of American whiskeys is, you know, we're not so geographically confined to a little area in, in Scotland. Uh, we have such a, a wider net of uh, terroir. So, you know, a five-year-old bourbon in Las Vegas can be probably pretty outstanding and be very different than uh you know, a, a deep humidity, hundred degree, <laughs> average hundred degree day. I mean, our 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 primary rickhouse, I think, has uh, is like seventy percent humidity on average year round. So that's pretty. It's, it's more like uh, maybe what a, a funky Jamaican rum would be. You know, that kind of terroir almost. I like that approach. And I also like your approach to community. And for those who maybe are just now learning about Cathead, can you share some of your charitable initiatives and why you think it's so important to support and give back to the community? Being a steward of a business, uh, especially if, if we're just talking on a local level in our home market, it, it's important to be relevant. You know, you don't want to just appear to be a, a, a business that is, you know, lining their pockets. Uh, and I think it's a, a social thing that, you know, this is how this is how we give back. And we've kind of taken that model of uh, giving back and, and really focusing not just in our home market, but every market is how how can we tie closer into the community and uh, the, the kind of the anchor of where the word cathead came from and uh, a statement on our flagship brand cathead vodka it says support live music period on the front label and that's something we'll never take off the front of that but what that means to us is is giving back to the music and arts community and uh, such a rich uh, heritage of uh, blues music jazz music in our region uh, we thought that that was a very meaningful thing to not only promote but also help support uh, so much so that uh, I, I can say this 12 years in we're we're, we're starting our own uh, music foundation in addition to other uh, philanthropic uh, music foundations that we work with to really kind of you know further advance and put our money where our mouth is on a on a local 
local level. So, you know, we've, we've had such good uh, mentorship in, in, the, uh, in the foundation space that uh, we, we, we want to invest further in that. Uh, but also, I mean, you know, you also have to look at kind of where our business crosses over into food and beverage. And, you know, that music component might tie into that. But, I mean, cocktails is an art. Food is an art. So we work with uh, not only with uh, music programs like Music Maker. Uh, you can go to our website. We have direct links to all these foundations. But uh, like Southern Foodway Alliance is a big one for us. Uh, not only in, they're based in Mississippi, but they cast a wider net of uh, kind of telling the foodways of, uh, of the South. And that's really important, not only to our restaurant partners, but it's important to uh, kind of the remembering the past and also the evolving South and how food food is changing. So, uh, you know, being a part of the community, that that's a very important step for us uh, to continue taking and supporting the arts in, in general. So you already touched on the old fashioned, but when you're unwinding, do you have a, a favorite Cathead Vodka? cocktail yeah i do it's just so damn hot here year round so <laughs> you gotta I, I my wife got me a um kind of like a sonic ice maker in the house so the little tiny ice yeah. cube that I, I i just make like a homemade lemonade and i, I put our honeysuckle uh, vodka in that and it's just divine it's it's so simple the honeysuckle is a very subtle flavor, but it, it just adds another kind of unique differentiation to like a, a vodka lemonade that is so nice. And uh, that, that's, I would say, my number one go-to around the house and, you know, if I'm out and about. You have to try that. Honeysuckle vodka lemonade actually sounds perfect. I don't make the lemonade too sweet, though. I think that's kind of important. Okay. I feel like I could possibly get some of the bartender buddies out here to to whip that up and actually do like a, a craft lemonade with it. So you might not be able to answer this or just not ready to, but along with the 2022 single barrel old soul, is there anything that people should be on the lookout coming down the pipeline or you want to want to keep that kind of close to your chest for now? Yeah, this this year has been probably one of our this year and last year probably been probably some of our most innovative years that we've had as far as uh, releases. So we're really going to uh, kind of tap the brakes on innovation. We have one brand coming next year, uh, but I'm not ready to talk about that. But outside of that, we're really just, we, we got to like kind of on the innovation side, we just got to stop, see what we've got. You know, we don't want to like overwhelm and do too much. And I, it, it's crazy, you know, what's changed from, you know, where we went into the pandemic and, you know, respectfully where we are now. Um, a lot of, so our, our bourbon was, our small batch was released in 18. And that was, uh, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of inventory then. And we have more and more inventory coming online over the years. But, that really kind of switched a lot of our uh, our our time and attention 
uh, more into retail. We've always been a very heavy on-premise minded business. Uh, we maintain that still, but we have items that perhaps skew heavier into retail now. And uh, so the, the bourbon uh, it's, you know, I don't, we're not maybe priced ounce cost wise favorably for cocktail menus, uh, having a $45 fifth of a uh, small batch, but, you know, we definitely can play in some places, uh, obviously bigger cities in, in that uh, space, but yeah, as far as where, where the evolution of the bourbon brand is going, you know, there's, there's a lot more, uh, at, at retail coming in, in that space. And then what would you say sets your gin apart? What are the botanicals that you focus on? To me, the the one thing, the one botanical that really I, I would say is is differentiating for me, and this is an extract that we make in house, but it's a uh, a sweet orange, uh, like a, a bitter orange. So it doesn't, it's not like a sugar base or anything like that. But when we tinker with that one particular botanical, it, it changes the dynamic of of like what you would consider like a traditional, like dry London style inspired gin. Uh, but that, that, that orange botanical that we use um, is, is just such a interesting ingredient for a gin. And uh, we're not trying to make like a, a sweet gin or anything like that. And, you know, I would say we're definitely a new American gin with kind of London inspired roots. And the whole reason behind uh, gin even becoming a brand in our portfolio was it, it, it was a, a gift to uh, my grandfather-in-law who uh, drank beef eaters. And the first time I met him, he, uh, he was like, so you own a, a distillery and he, uh, I was like, yes, sir. And he was like, uh, well, do you make gin? And I said, no, sir. Um, and then he was like, well, do you, own a, do you have a bar? And I said, no, sir. He's like, well, what good are you? So, uh, <laughs> before my wife and I got married, I, I made him his own gin as just a gift and, uh, you know, to have, have fun and have a gin at our wedding because he was, uh, such a huge gin drinker. Um, and, and I blogged about that and, uh, the gin is in that blog out of, uh, that gin reviewer out of, uh, the UK, uh, asked me to send him a bottle and I didn't know he was reviewing our, uh, gin for food and wine magazine until food and wine called and said that we had been selected as one of the top American craft gins. And I told them the story and they're like, well, if you can prove distribution, we'll, we'll publish your gin in our upcoming, you know, 40 million copies. So <laughs> we figured it was a, a pretty good time to limp into the gin business. Uh, so we've, we've kind of evolved from there, but other botanicals uh, that I, I think kind of uh, stick out to uh, maybe people that are, are smarter than uh, we are uh, about, you know, points of differentiation, the lemon verbena seems to be one that gets a lot of eyebrows and questions, but you know, it's, it's a, we wanted to have a very distinctive profile style of gin kind of with the story behind that, you know, not teaching an old dog new tricks, but wanted to incorporate other local regional botanicals that 
uh, made made sense to us. So you've definitely already shared a couple of just really cool details about Cathead, but I do Which ask some also of it brings up another cocktail uh, that a, a bar here locally does called the Mississippi Martini. It's uh, it's equal parts Cathead vodka, Cathead honeysuckle, and Bristow gin. And I, I was kind of taken back by it at first, uh, just seeing it on a menu. I'm like, wow, that's a really cool name. And you're using all three of our products in it. And that's really cool too, but it doesn't taste good. And it, it is a fantastic martini. So um, super easy to make, but uh, yeah. That was pretty powerful too. <laughs> if, if I go if I go out drinking, I'll, I'll start the night with one of those. So, I mean, that's another awesome detail. And I do ask some of my guests, like, is there like a, a, a bit of trivia or you know, information that maybe most people don't know, but I think you've hit... <laughs> three or four, unless you think there's another one that relates to the brand. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, let's see when we relocated our distillery, uh, to Jackson, uh, Mississippi from, uh, we were just like 20 minutes North before, uh, and then we had laws changed that kind of allowed us to have more of a brick and mortar storefront, uh, invite guests down, uh, we, we started a, a small music festival called Cathead Jam. Uh, so I was talking about our foundation earlier that is coming live this year called Dream Note. And what we're doing with that is uh, Dream Note will uh, adopt ownership of Cathead Jam uh, in the efforts of uh, fundraising and philanthropy uh, for Dream Note. So um, we're, we're launching our, our festival back next next year so we're super excited about having uh having music in the front yard again on a on a big band scale so what month will that be in uh it's the first uh weekend in june friday and saturday okay we'll get about uh the last one we had was 2019 and then pandemic and not wanting to do like uh pod seating for uh you know, social distancing, we kind of, we kind of held off. And then the the inventory of, of bands was so hyper-competitive this year, we, we decided to hold off um, just because we couldn't particularly compete in the uh, larger, you know, Bonnaroo pricing and Jazz Fest pricing circuit. But uh, we're, we're back on uh, for next year. We're super excited about it. It's we kind of build as a festival you can find your friends at. So we cap it around 5,000 people a day. It's, it's really intimate one stage, but you know, really high quality acts and uh, can't, can't wait to get that going again. That's still, that's a lot of people to, to manage. Are there signature cocktails that you feature during the. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Certain drinks you can only get at certain times in the festival too. Oh, that's cool. That's a cool idea. I like that. <laughs> I meant to check that out by business part of that. Sounds like it could be a cool trip. We can learn more about uh, Cathead and the Jackson F&B scene. That'd be a good idea, I think. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time. Awesome place. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Actually, well, before I forget. Vegas, uh, you got you to gotta show me show me some spots. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, hankering for... Uh, uh, a beer and a shot at the Double Down. That's my my favorite place in town. 
That was my old uh, stomping grounds for a very long time. That, and of course, they had the sister site, Frankie's, the Tiki Room, you know, same owners and sometimes the the same bartenders. And then you got you got to check out Herbs and Rye in Cleaver, obviously. I mean, two world-class operations from uh, Natalia Mendoza. And who knows? I mean, we've got so much stuff opening that there might even be some some other stuff. And if you make it out next November, we'll have the F1 race. So you can, uh, can also come out for that and I can show you around. So definitely uh, let me know Sounds when you're beautiful. coming. Definitely. Um, before we go, uh, how can people connect one more time with uh, Cathead? Yeah, uh, two easiest ways, uh, catheaddistillery.com or our uh, Instagram handle at drinkcathead. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Nice to meet you and thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Bar Hacks podcast produced by KRG Hospitality and hosted by me, David Clem. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Follow us on Twitter at AskBarHacks and Instagram at BarHacks. Talk to you soon.